soon as we knew it was was Hescock and that he left in the tool truck, it's like you get a hold of Mac, find his supervisor, and you just tell him we want to know where he's at, where his stops are going to be. We want to know what his itinerary is today. And, you know, to match credit, um, you know, once in a while, you call an employer and they want to be about and, you know, withhold. And there was forthcoming and there was just not a, there was not a problem. He says, yeah, he was, he, call, he called to call in sick today and he's got tools to deliver to the Ford dealership in Blackfoot. And I just told him, you either deliver or you're fired. And so, and I'm sure he was told that his decision that day, in essence, saved life. I mean, it gave her an opportunity to escape. If he'd have taken the day off, I, I mean, you hope the outcome would be what it was, but you just don't know. Long before Detective Cox shared this story with me, I reached out to Mac Tools in hopes of finding out the name of Hess Cox's boss, who insisted that he go to work that day. Unfortunately, my attempts to identify him have failed so far. So if you happen to know his identity, please contact me at she'smissingpodcast.com. I would love to speak with him. Now let's go over what the police knew about Hescock so far. At the time of the incident, he was 42 years old and didn't have a spouse or children. However, he did have his mother, sister, niece, and nephew living with him. These were the family members he had mentioned to Megan. They were, in fact, out of town visiting relatives in Oregon when he abducted Megan. Hescock had been a top suspect in the abduction of Amber Hoops, but he had been given an alibi by his niece, nephew, and sister for the night she was taken. But this time, he had no one to give him an alibi. This is She's Missing. This podcast discusses criminal behavior, kidnapping, gun violence, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. We ask that if you know Megan or her family, that you continue to help protect her identity. We activated SWAT. We stationed SWAT out to uh, Keith's house uh, and myself and a couple other detectives were out there hidden and we waited. I'm Chris Reed and at the time I was working in the backcountry assignment at the sheriff's office. So <clears throat> I had recently been in detectives and had just changed assignments to the backcountry. And I remember that I was working that day. We didn't typically work the same shift as patrol oftentimes we would come in a little bit later and stay later at night through the course of events they obviously identified who the suspect was and and i found out um, that he worked for this tool company and he was at work and he was driving a truck a tool company truck i don't remember which brand it was but we expected that he would be coming home soon because he had not intended to leave her. And um, so he had to go out and he'd be coming back. And if I remember correctly, Kevin Cox and I set up on the Louisville Highway because we expected that's the way that he would be coming home. And we had put together a plan where we had other deputies near the house, but out of sight. And it was a, a, a pretty long driveway down to his house. And so 
the plan was that if we saw him, we would get behind him. And when he turned down that driveway, we'd, we had deputies there and we'd have, have him kind of boxed in from the back. So Kevin and I set up on the Louisville highway and I don't remember how long it was, but sure enough, here comes the truck and we identified it as the correct truck. And so um, we pulled in trying to stay back where he wouldn't notice us. We pulled in behind him and I distinctly remember him turning and going towards his house. And when he got to the driveway, he started to turn in. And I don't know if he saw something at his house or if he by that time had seen us. But for whatever reason, he started in the driveway and then he quickly turned back out on the street. And we knew that probably we'd been made. And uh, for the life of me, I, I don't know what he slowed, started to turn in, and something must have been hinky to him because he just he passed by and went straight out. And he started down the road, and one of the patrol cars pulled out crossways in the road to try and block him. And um, he he just got going faster and faster, and and I remember thinking he's going to hit that car, and right at the last second they pulled out of his way so they didn't get hit then the pursuit was was on and kevin was the lead car i was the second car i was not in a car i was in a pickup and uh in fact is so was kevin but um generally in a pursuit like that one deputy should be calling the pursuit talking to dispatch telling them where we're at and all that kind of stuff since I was the second car, that kind of failed to me. And so I started, I was on the radio with dispatch. I was calling the pursuit. I don't remember, I, I don't remember the route, but it was long. We went through town and, and headed east. Um, in the middle of all this, needless to say, there were other deputies that got involved. I remember that they put uh, Jim Schiffler in front of us because he had the dog and they wanted obviously if he stopped and bailed they wanted to send the dog and brian lovell and i don't remember if he was with someone else or if he was i don't think he was with jim but anyway there ended up being a couple of cars in front of kevin and i so i started out initially as second car ended up about fourth car Megan managed to escape around 3.10 p.m. and made it back home safely just before 3.30. Only an hour later, Hescock would arrive home. Can you imagine the pressure on the sheriff's office to get everything in order in such a short window of time? They were uncertain of exactly when he would get home, so organizing and setting up the takedown was done very quickly. The pursuit began right at 4.30. Despite deputies' plans to box him in, Hescock managed to get around the deputies. Megan's escape couldn't have been more perfectly timed. She truly got out just in the nick of time. Some of the deputies that had started the day with Megan's family helping to look for her heard the pursuit start and immediately jumped into action to join in the chase. One of those deputies was Sergeant Brian Lovell, who at the time was Deputy Lovell. So I was listening on the radio and, and I could hear who was in it, 
where they were going and and speeds and all of that stuff that's broadcast on the radio. And I was downtown in the patrol office, and I had grabbed, uh, once I heard that come over the radio, I had grabbed um, a roll of spike strips, and we kept it in the patrol office there. So I grabbed those on my way out the door and, and threw them in the front seat of the car and started heading towards the pursuit from downtown um, up Yellowstone, trying to catch up to it. Um, and and my plan was to see if I get in a spot to, you know, deploy those spike strips to uh, slow this truck down. Um, and then as I come through town, uh, Todd Raymond, who was the sergeant on the opposite side of the day, he had... Uh, he was on his way to dispatch for a meeting of some sort and heard this going on. And so he, he saw me coming through town and, and he got behind me and, and, you know, communicating over the radio. Our plan was, is, um, you know, we're going to catch this pursuit by then, you know, we could hear it was going, um, East out highway 26, um, uh, towards Ryrie. And, and, uh, he was going to stay with me because we knew 26 is a busy road. And so the plan was to try to get ahead of it. And he was going to stop the traffic while I, you know, hopefully got these stop sticks deployed and, and got him through it. When the chase first began, it was Deputy Jim Schiffler and his trusty partner, K-9 Rick, who were right behind Hescock. They were in the thick of it from the very start. Amazingly, the entire pursuit was captured on video thanks to the dash cam in Deputy Schiffler's vehicle, giving a clear understanding of what happened during the entire chase. Meanwhile, Sergeant Todd Raymond and Deputy Level were en route to join the pursuit as it headed towards Highway 26 the same highway that Megan lived on. My name's Todd Raymond. At the time, I was a sergeant with the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office. The day that this all occurred, I was actually, I was on night shift uh, when that happened. I received a phone call that afternoon uh, from the detective sergeant saying that they, tell, telling me what, uh, what they were working on and that he needed some SWAT guys. At the time, I was a uh, SWAT team commander. And I asked him if he needed the whole SWAT team or just some of them. He said just just some for a takedown and um, that there were a couple out at the range and a few that were on duty. And, and I asked him if he needed me out there or the rest of the team. He said no. And I had some other obligations with the sheriff's office I was supposed to do that day. And so... Uh, he basically just gave me that information as an advisory more than anything. So I continued on with what I was doing and uh, on my way into the office at whatever time it was in the afternoon and I heard the, uh, heard the pursuit begin. And back then only the sergeants had stop sticks uh, in their patrol cars. So I thought that I could help more by... Uh, being a part of that pursuit and getting the stop sticks and get, getting out in front of the pursuit to uh, stop it. So that was where I began with the pursuit. And I know there was concern. I don't remember if it was voiced over the radio, but there was concern because he was headed straight towards Megan's residence, which is out along Highway 26, you know, around somewhere in the middle between Idle Falls and Ryrie. And, um, 
and I think I, I think I overheard Schiffler's radio traffic. He had passed the truck. He, he was trying to get in a position to prevent him from pulling into the driveway or going to that house. Because um, that that was a concern. So basically, he had it straight there unless he turned off on a county road somewhere in between. So I remember him talking about that, and he was trying, you know, to slow slow him down, you know, get in front of him, slow the truck down, and and that wasn't working. And there was a little bit of concern there if he had a weapon or something, and he could you know, easily fire at Jim's car from the out at the front of that truck. And you know, they, they had some cautionary radio traffic back and forth there from from. Uh, uh, you know, between Schiffler and the other line of deputies behind it. Um, and, um, so, you know, we're, we're working towards that way to catch up to this pursuit. And I, you know, I could hear the speeds they were going, they, they were going, you know, 60 to 70 something miles per hour. So it wasn't, I knew that, you know, over several miles we were going to catch up and, um, um, we, you know, we could over, overtake that. It took a while, but um, I think somewhere as we got near Ryrie, uh, approaching Ryrie out on Highway 26, uh, that, you know, we, me and Todd Raymond ultimately got caught up to the back of the pack. From several miles away, I was able to catch up to him. And once we got onto, you know, once we got onto Highway 26, that's, I started passing other guys in the pursuit trying to get in front of, uh, Hescock to flatten his tires. By the time me and Todd catch up to it, um, uh, you know, we're in the back of the line. We're communicating over the radio. We're we're approaching Ryrie, and we find a safe place somewhere between uh, the cemetery and the Hillview gas station there uh, to get past this thing. We're passing the other pursuing cars, and and we're trying to quickly buzz right by the the tool truck with Hescock in it because we don't want to get shot at. You know, we got we're talking about those kind of safety and um, tactical things there. And and the plan was once we you know get up there, we're gonna go way ahead. Um, Todd was gonna stop the the westbound traffic, and and I was gonna throw these spikes out, and we're gonna spike tires of this truck, get it slowed down. Hopefully he'll stop. I guess we'll we won't be going sixty to seventy mile an hour, however fast this tool truck could go at the time. And um, so we get past Heisey Road, um, which is a few miles just east of Ryrie, um, on Highway Twenty Six. We get past Heisey Road, just like not very far, half mile, a quarter of a mile, something like that. And and we are slowing down to pull over. And Todd is, you know, starting to stop traffic. And I'm trying to find a spot. I'm trying to find a spot to um, pull over and start getting these out. And I, I didn't even get, I don't think either one of us got stopped. And he had turned on um, Heisey Road and headed north. Schiffler, he was the number one guy behind the pursuit because um, they had communicated if he pulls over and stops, he's got his his dog there to deploy and, um, you know, this situation where they deploy the dog and go apprehend him that way. Um, so Todd and I, it's, it's of course a two lane County road. It's much skinnier, uh, not quite as much room as highway 26. We, we are passing the pursuing units and trying to get 
up in a spot where maybe we can find an opening to get ahead of this and put spike strips out. That's sort of the plan again. And as we get up towards, uh, you know, we cross into Jefferson County, we're, we're heading, make the turn towards, you know, the Heisey River Bridge and around Mountain River Ranch. And it ends up being Hescock in the, in the Mac tool truck, uh, Schiffler right behind him, me behind Schiffler, Todd Raymond behind me, and, and the rest of the pursuing units. He turned off and that left uh, Schiffler, Lovell, and I uh, right behind him. And from that point on, I could, I could never get around him to get in front of him to uh, flatten his tires. So the three of us just stayed right on him, uh, past Heisey, past uh, Kelly Canyon, and it turned into a dirt road. And with every vehicle that passed, uh, uh, that truck he was in kicked up a lot of dust. Um, the three of us, right, right on his tail, we were kicking up a lot of dust. And that went on for 15 miles. I, I remember trying to be as descriptive as I could to dispatch which road we were on. And, and by now I could hear that we had Madison County because we were headed towards Madison County. We went up a dirt road up into the mountains and it was really dusty. And uh, there were numerous cars involved in the pursuit. And it was so dusty that I, I, I couldn't see. And I was trying to stay as close to it as I could. And I remember coming around a corner and I almost ran right into the back of Kevin. It was so dusty that I, I couldn't see him in front of me. And so that spooked me. And so I backed off a little bit because I thought the last thing we need is a wreck while we're chasing this guy. In addition to the various deputies already engaged in the pursuit, Deputy Stosich, who had initially responded to Megan's home that morning, also joins in. Well, I was actually at the office um, writing the report. The call came in that there was a pursuit. So at that point, I dropped my report, got in my car and, and was was involved partially with the, the pursuit. So there was multiple people in line. I was probably fifth in line, I'm guessing, vehicle-wise, driving up uh, through Kelly Canyon into the Moody Creek area. When I pulled in, there was a lot of dust, a lot of, um, some, some officers had flat tires because of the, the, the terrain. Towards the end of it, we'd give a landmark, like there's a fork in the road, we took a left, or we took a right or whatever. And pretty soon it was about uh, three to five minutes before the guys behind us had uh, had reached that landmark to tell us, okay, we got the fork in the road, we took a left or a right. Um, so at that point, I knew that the three of us, when it went down, it would just, it would probably just be the three of us. While Deputy Jim Schiffler, Sergeant Todd Raymond, and Deputy Brian Lovell were leading the way, the rest of the deputies found themselves falling behind due to the thick dust that engulfed the scene. It was quite a sight to witness in the full video of the pursuit. As the chase wound through the mountainside on dirt roads, things became very intense. The dense dust created a nearly zero visibility atmosphere, making it nerve wracking to watch. My heart was racing as I watched the video from Deputy Schiffler's perspective. He expertly maneuvered through the narrow tree lined mountain roads, around campers and other vehicles along the way. 
It was truly a testament to his expertise and the challenges faced by law enforcement officers in high-pressure situations. Throughout the adrenaline-pumping chase, I could also hear canine Rick in the background. His continuous soft barks added to the tension and anticipation of the moment. It was as if he was conveying his eagerness to apprehend the suspect through his barks. And all of us had assumed at this point, as long as this pursuit was, and considering what had taken place with Megan, that this was probably going to end, you know, not good. That there was a high likelihood that that there was going to be problems. There was so much dust kicking up, um, which spread everybody out behind us, um, and and behind the tool truck. And I don't know that that truck, how he didn't lose control and and go off the road is is beyond me because we're going 45 50 mile an hour sometimes we're, we're going at a good clip and even for these chevy impalas that we were in uh, that me and schiffler and todd were in um, and other people had some bigger cars and trucks but it, it was a lot to keep on the road and i i was just concerned with keeping jim's taillights in sight like i did not want to lose him in case this thing stopped, I'm like, I need to be there, his backup. I don't want to get so far away that we lose each other. And I'm kind of assuming everybody behind me is, you know, doing the same thing. And I'm hearing Chris Reed call out landmarks on the radio. Hey, we're just passing this. We're just passing this. And I'm like, man, we passed that a long time ago. You know, it just seemed like it had stretched out so far. In reality, it probably wasn't super far, but it was ways. Like, I think, you know, after a while, everybody in line was just chasing dust. Even with the challenging conditions and the pressure mounting, Chris Reed did his best to maintain coordination with Madison and Jefferson County deputies, who had joined in the chase after Hescock led them out of Bonneville County. It was remarkable to listen to the different agencies come together in this situation to support one another and ensure the safety of the community. And then he turned off the uh, that dirt road onto a smaller a logging road type thing and I didn't know I didn't know the name of the road I, I contacted someone in Madison County I told them that we just made a turn it had a, a logging road number or something like that he the guy that I was talking to on the uh, mutual aid frequency told me that it, he said that's about uh, two miles and it's going to dead end so I knew the three of us and uh, and Hescock were that that, that was all going to go down at that point I'm thinking, well, he's going to go up there and turn around. He's going to come back at us, kind of wondering what he's up to. What was he going to do? So there's spots, even right when we got to that dead end, there's even spots where there's still snow. Nothing we couldn't go through in the cars, but it's June 5th, so we're up there high enough where there's still you know, snow melting in the shadows. We come to where it opens up. I can see pieces there where we're turning corners I could see through the dust and, and make out the tool truck but we get up there and he, he goes off kind of it's a big circle there um, and, a, and a sign I think a forest service sign and what that is is designed it's a kind of a big round circle design for people to park in and there was an outhouse kind of thing in the middle and then it's the trailhead there for this four-wheeler trail and i'd never really been on that trail i'd never really been off the beaten path up in there a ton um i could see escock takes this truck over that tank trap and just gets stuck high center just real quick 
we continued up there when he got the truck stuck he got out of his truck and looked over his shoulder and then just started walking down a path and uh, it's pretty pretty good clue that something wasn't right um people will either fight you they'll run from you or they'll give up but they typically don't just walk away and i see jim and his dog um heading up the trail i think i can't remember if they seems like he went around the right side of the truck and i went around the left side and i could see hescock just walking up the trail just walking and i remember thinking later i'm like man that was like he wasn't running from us or anything like it, it was odd because he's running from us he's in this pursuit driving away and and then you know he's just leisurely walk up the trail and and i remember i couldn't see his right hand he's dressed in a gray tool guy shirt and i'd never seen him before i'd never dealt with him but i i come up the driver's side of that truck and i remember stepping off to the side a few steps as i got to the front of that truck and i was trying to get you know, a little bit of some form of cover or something there as he was walking up that trail. And I could see off to my right, off the front, we were about right at the front of the truck. And I kind of see off to my right, Jim, and he was giving him commands. At that point, Schiffler sent his canine after him. And just before Rick, the canine, got to him, he turned around and opened fire. And I could see Rick, the dog, heading up to get him. He sat down on this dirt pile and uh, was sitting, you know, perpendicular to us. So he's kind of, his, his uh, left side was facing back towards the truck, back towards where me and Schiffler were kind of spread out across the front. And the dog was heading up there. But he, he sits down and I stopped and I, me and Jim are probably both yelling at him. He sits down and I just see him pull up his right hand. And, and I remember I couldn't see that before. And I had already had my gun out and was pointing at him, but he pulled up his his right hand and I could see this gun. And he's just sitting there in a in a position like he's he's taking aim at us with this gun. You can kind of see out of the corner of my eye, Schiffler was, you know, just the other same same position as me, maybe a little further ahead, but on the other side of the truck. Um and and I I don't remember hearing shots come from from Hescock but he was sitting down and and it seemed like he was shooting at us I take aim and and shoot and I think I fired two or three rounds and um, I remember it, it felt like it, it felt like after I'm and I think Jim's shooting at the same time and I don't remember how many he shot a couple rounds maybe but um I remember seeing after I shoot, like his body kind of go back, and and he and he kind of he his body moves and he kind of goes down in the trail. I and I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, shit, they hit him." You know, I don't know. I don't know if I said it out loud or what, but I I remember that exact statement. Oh, shit, I got him. And then all I can hear after that is is a voice next to me saying I'm shot I'm shot I'm shot I, I didn't realize I'd been shot for a second I knew I was injured but I didn't realize I'd been shot I, I'm looking over at 
Jim. And I thought for a second, I'm like, wait a minute, I, I didn't shoot Jim. I was worried that I shot someone other than I was supposed to. Um, I, I was worried that I'd shot Rick. Um, but I'm like, I'm like, I'm not yelling that I'm shot. I'm like, who's shot? You know, I can just, I get here. And then I did, then I finally figure out it's Todd and Todd was like really almost right next to me. Um, just to my, to my right between me and the, the truck. Um, and that's how I could hear him yelling this. I'm shot. I'm shot. I'm shot. But I got on the radio and requested a medic and then made my way back to the car. Lovell and Schiffler, uh, checked on me and then by then the rest of the guys were showing up and um, they started some first aid on me. I put the helicopter on standby on our, through the course of the pursuit thinking that, that it wasn't going to end in a uh, without a conflict and more, more than likely someone was going to get injured. I didn't realize it was going to be me. By the time I got there that kind of dead ended the dust was clearing and I I saw Kevin jump out of his pickup and, and he started down the road to where I assumed Hescock had gone. And I got out of my pickup and um, as I did, I saw Todd Raymond and it seems like to me, he, he came out from behind that tool truck. I don't remember, but he was obviously hurt. Uh, he was walking real stiff legged and I, I jumped out to him and, and I was expecting to hear gunshots and it was just quiet. And I grabbed Todd and he and Todd said something to the effect of they shot him. He shot Schiffler's dog. They shot him. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, he shot me. And I said, well, where are you shot? And he and he showed me in his, on his leg that he had been shot. And so I was trying to get Todd to stop and sit down so I could look at him. And he was obviously wound up and and I finally did. I, I, I didn't know if it was over, if they were still engaged in a gun battle, I didn't know. But I finally got Todd to sit down and got him to lay down. And I could see the hole in his pants right about the middle of his thigh. And so I took my knife out and I cut his pants up to where I could open that up and I could see it. And I, I could see that it appeared to be a bullet wound, went in on the outside of his leg. And, and I looked and I couldn't see an exit wound. And so years ago when I was a post, one of our instructors, back then we didn't have all the nice equipment they got now as far as trauma kits and all that kind of stuff. But he told us, you need to make a gunshot wound kit of your own. So if you're ever getting shot or somebody else, you have the correct stuff to treat a gunshot wound. I'd carried this in my car for years. And of course I'd never used it, but I had it. And so I ran over the pickup, I grabbed this and, and I, I, it wasn't bleeding bad. It was just kind of oozing blood. And anyway, I put a thing on it and wrapped it all up tight. Seven seconds. In this short amount of time, a critical series of events unfolded. It began with the deployment of K-9 Rick and ended with Hescock firing his final shot. Within that brief time frame, the deputies faced life and death decisions, each hoping to make it home safely that night. It was in those intense moments that their extensive training and preparation became paramount. 
enabling them to withstand the gunfire directed at them. Their survival was also thanks to the sacrifice of Canine Rick. Hescock had kind of rolled down, and I, Schiffler was calling out on the radio, and I sort of kept um, cover um, up front. I think by then I had moved around to the, we'd come back to the back of the truck, and I had moved around to the, the passenger side and the front passenger door of the truck and was looking down. I could see Hescock's feet laying in the trail, like the bottoms of his feet were facing us. And I kind of see his body a little bit and I wasn't sure if he was alive. So I'm yelling, I'm at the front of the truck. I'm yelling commands, show me your hands. Um, I'm, I'm probably yelling all kinds of colorful things. Schiffler comes back up behind me and I knew Todd was okay. He was limping on a leg, was in his leg. I knew he was in a safe space. I knew more people were showing up uh, from the pursuit. I just didn't want Hescock to come keep aggressing us or come shoot at us some more. So um, Schiffler got up to me and and I could see Rick was laying there too. And I think I remember telling Jim, man, I hope I didn't shoot your dog. I was so, so afraid that I shot Rick at that moment when I was trying to shoot Hescock. And I can't remember what Jim said, but I, we were, <laughs> the adrenaline was running. Frank Franco comes up behind us. And I'm like, we need to go up and clear him. He's not responding. We're, we're yelling commands at him. Show us your hands. Show, drop the gun, whatever we're yelling at him. I think there was me and Jim Franco, um, who's one of our detectives. I can't remember who else. I know Kevin Cox was there. Um, I can't remember if it's Stosich, but there was three or four of us that went to where Hescock was to, to clear him or make him, make him safe. See if he was alive. We got up to him, and and Rick is there, and he's shot, and Hescock is there, and he's shot, and um, he was Hescock was obviously dead. He had um, a gunshot wound to the head, and it was obvious he was gone, and just laying in the trail. And then kind of, I remember focusing on Jim, because I just remember Jim yelling, "He shot my dog! He shot my dog!" You know, we were there with him. I don't remember any signs of life that we we weren't trying to gather him up and get him to to help or anything. I don't think we moved him from where he was at. And he was, there was a little space between where um, he and Hescock were. It's not like they were laying on each other. But I believe Rick got a bite on um, Hescock's arm. I remember Schiffler coming out there and, he was upset and said that, that, that he'd shot his dog. And and I don't remember who told me, but that they'd shot Hescock and Hescock was dead and the dog was dead. And, and we had more units arriving all the time. And I was worried about Todd because I was afraid perhaps that had maybe hit a bone and gone up into his abdomen. And so where there wasn't an exit wound, I was afraid that it could be worse and I couldn't see it. And by now they'd called for a helicopter uh, to come and get Todd. And I remember talking to Todd and his color was good and he was coherent. He was talking to me and he didn't seem to be getting any worse. And so I'm thinking this is good. And I, a couple of Madison County guys, I think they were Madison County guys showed up that were deputies, but they were also EMT trained and they wanted to start an IV 
on Todd. And so I remember they had a heck of a time hitting the vein and and but they finally did. They got it started and and by now they're talking to the helicopter and he's trying to find us. They gave him the GPS coordinates. Back then GPS was just coming out and finally one of the guys got there with the GPS that gave the coordinates uh, for the helicopter. Like I said it was just a parking lot completely surrounded by trees and so we had some smoke canisters and we popped some smoke and they finally said yeah they could see us and um and and i remember that helicopter coming in and it was a small area and there were places where they'd knock trees down and there was big holes in the ground and uh i remember watching that pilot and he was looking out trying to figure out where to land and so he starts down 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 and Finally, he opens the door and he sticks his head out and he's he's looking where he can where he can set that thing, and and he landed it straddling one of those holes. It was some good flying, but he got on the ground and and the nurses jumped out and they came over and you know what's the injury? And I told him he's got a gunshot wound and they looked at the wraps said that looks good. He had an IV already started and they were like let's load him and go. And I don't remember who had told me, maybe Kevin, that I should go with him to the hospital. And so I was going to, but they were concerned about weight. They can only put so many people on the helicopter. And so they said, no, you need to stay. We picked him up and we hauled him over to the helicopter. And we stuffed him in there and got him all loaded. And they flew off with him. I remember being just pissed off because I, I was just, I remember, you know, after it's done and I'm standing over Hescock and I just remember calling him every name in the book. <clears throat> I was just mad. I was like, why would you make me do this? That's that's how I was I was mad. Why why would you why'd you make us do this? And and of course he shot Jim's dog, Scott killed Rick and, and Todd's shot. And glad I'm not shot, nobody else is shot. Um, I just remember being mad as hell at him, you know, just, just that he put us in that situation to make us do that. And I was mad for, <laughs> I don't know, I was mad, at, probably mad at him for a long time. Through that, someone was kind of hanging out with me and hanging out with Jim and they were gathering my, my pistol from me and my car was part of the crime scene and they were starting that kind of process and, and, um, I remember Warren Hudman was one of our detectives and uh, he was there when I was giving my pistol to Kevin Cox and, and cause it was evidence, you know, so I gave him my pistol and my pistol mags and Hudman says, do you have another gun? I'm like, well, I got my, my rifles in the car and my shotgun or whatever. And he's like, no, do you got another handgun? And I said, no, I don't have another handgun with me. So he took his out of his holster and put it in my holster. I, I don't know why I, that was, that was uh, I don't know, sense of relief, a little bit of weight off, a little bit of whatever, whatever adrenaline things and, and me freaking out that I had going on. Just that thing was, that, that was just comforting. I, I might have just chilled out a little bit after that. And I don't know what he was going to do without a gun, but 20 years later, I, I just, it's those little pieces I remember the most, you know, little details that are foggy in the middle, but, you know, that kind of thing, I kind of remember the most. Things had somewhat settled down. There were a lot of people there. There was Madison County there. There was our guys. Um, and um, 
it was obvious that he was dead and the dog was laying there dead. And uh, of course we had a crime scene. And so we were there for hours while they processed this crime scene. Ultimately, when everybody had pretty much cleared out, we needed to bring Rick and uh, they needed somebody to bring him. And so we wrapped him up in a blanket, put him in the back of my pickup and I brought him back down to the valley. Um, they came up and got Hescock's body. And I was somewhat familiar with Hescock because of the Amber Hoops investigation. I was a detective at the time. He was a suspect in that as well. And so um, I had actually done some follow-up on that when I was a detective. But uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's what I remember of that day. I mean, it's a, it's a short story for a long day. This podcast was produced by me, Emily. Be sure to stay tuned until the end to hear a preview of our next episode. While the timeline may not be exact, the facts of this case are laid out as close as the memories of those involved allowed. You can find additional information on our website, she'smissingpodcast.com. She's Missing is a Search Party Media production. If you have any information about the disappearance of Amber Hoops, please contact Bonneville County Sheriff's Office by calling 208-529-1200 or by going to ifcrime.org. I want to give a special thanks to the dedicated officers that were involved in the pursuit. Kevin Cox, Chris Reed, Brian Lovell, Todd Raymond, Jim Schiffler, Frank Franco, Sam Holse, Albert Thompson, Greg Ricks, Deputy Hudman, and more from Bonneville, Jefferson, and Madison County. I'm Phaedra Brown. On June 5th, I was actually here in Eastern Oregon. We were visiting family, and I had been staying at what they called a stock show in a little town that's kind of close to where my family lived. And we were there for a rodeo and my cousin was showing some animals. And I remember that we were getting ready to actually head to the rodeo when I saw my mom and my aunt, they came up and they told us that um, they had to leave and that they were heading back to Idaho Falls. And then that my uncle Keith Hescock had been killed. They didn't really say what happened, how he died or anything like that. They just said that they had to go and get back to Idaho Falls to figure out what was going on. I remember everyone was crying. I was crying for completely different reasons than what everyone else was crying for. I just remember feeling relieved, but also scared at the same time because I didn't know what had happened and what was going to come out of it. <laughs>